Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I think I've shared this with you before. When I was younger, as in during my childhood, my mom taught me and my sisters how to cross stitch and Mm. I learned how to crochet and I spent a lot of time doing that kind of yarn work, needle work. I attempted to learn how to knit, but that's as far as my skill set got me. I have no such skill set to speak of. Um, I made a gem Halloween costume a couple years ago, and man, those stitches on the silver belt that I had to make were embarrassing. Pretty uh, the the chunky kind of stitches. Yeah, it was just like up and down, in and out. Hey, but there, there you go. You're sewing. <laughs> um, I will say though, after reading up for this episode on the revival of crafting and handmade, I want to pick up my crochet needles again. Yeah, I want to make something. I don't know what, but I, I got I've got a hankering to make something. Yeah, well, it's also the holiday season, and one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about crafting is because with gift buying these days, a lot more people are turning to local sellers and looking specifically for handmade crafted items. Yeah, I actually bought my boyfriend one of his uh, Christmas presents is something that is handcrafted by an artisan somewhere, I don't know, New Jersey or something. I don't really know where it's from, but it is handmade and I can't say what it is on the podcast. In case he listens. Yeah, I don't know if he listens or not. <laughs> well, just in case. But follow-up question, though, Caroline. Mm-hmm. This won't give anything away. Okay. Can you say whether you bought it on Etsy? I did not buy it on Etsy, but I bought it on another website that features very small production type of projects. Okay. So an Etsy type yeah. of store. Well, we've got to talk about Etsy when it comes to holiday shopping because this past Black Friday weekend, they had their hugest sales weekend ever. Uh, they had a 60% year-over-year increase in sales compared to last year, which you don't need to have a degree in business and marketing to know that that is a lot. That is a lot. And it's interesting to read the trend stories about Etsy around this time every year because every single year the the lead is like, holy goodness, Etsy is selling even more stuff than they did last year. The percent increases are ridiculous. And the website enjoys 42 million unique visitors per month going to more than 800,000 shops filled with 15 million products. I know that when I go on Etsy, just as like a casual browser, you know, if I'm not specifically looking for something, it can be overwhelming. There is so much stuff on there and you kind of have to weed through a lot too. Yeah. And for people out there who are really invested in crafting and handmade, don't worry, we aren't just going to talk about Etsy, but I feel like Etsy is such a household name and one of the reasons big reasons, I would say, for crafting, kind of re-entering the mainstream in the past five, ten years. And the incredible thing about Etsy is 
how quickly it has picked up speed. Because as a website, it turned profitable in 2009. It had only been live at that point for uh, less than four years, which if you know anything about digital marketing, turning a profit that quickly is pretty good. And by 2012, it was generating almost $900 million in sales alone. Yeah, which is pretty darn impressive that that many people are spending that much money on handmade or mostly handmade goods. Uh, Etsy itself charges about 20 cents uh, for every item listed and makes about 3.5% of every sale. And that said, though, a minority of sellers are full-time Etsypreneurs. Um, I actually know of a woman here in Atlanta who started a business on Etsy a few years back just making really cute handmade labels for things like uh, preserve jars and labels now. She does a lot of things for um, like wedding place cards and things like that. And now she does this still on the side of her full-time job. But Caroline, she's making... Probably 25000 extra dollars a year. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That is so much more money. It's than, incredible. <laughs> that That is incredible. And I mean, that's also so much more money than just your average Etsy seller makes. That's true. Yeah. She's definitely at the top of her game in terms of that because the average seller is making under $4,000 a year, actually. Right. So basically just enough to... Notice a difference in your income and be able to pay for things, but not enough to quit your day job, basically. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, even though people and and it's largely women um, aren't making enough to just retire on and have an Etsy retirement fund, uh, it's still a new kind of industry. Right. It's this thing. It's part of a growing micro business economy, basically. And. A lot of people talk about how the government fails to capture a lot of these sellers in that exist in these informal economies are kind of falling through the cracks. Because if you think about it in terms of like the larger economy, we're in an interesting time now. We're kind of coming out of the recession and everything, but we still have middle class issues. We still have issues of the disappearing middle class and people not being able to find work. And so the majority of Etsy sellers uh are combining actually combining multiple sources of income only 26% have full-time jobs outside of Etsy and one feature of Etsy that is really appealing to women and particularly moms is that the childcare issues with an Etsy job are obviously as about as flexible as you can get because you are oftentimes working in your home or as uh, some women will describe how, you know, after the kids will go to bed, then they can start sewing, working on their projects. And I mean, I think it it's clear from what we're talking about that it Etsy businesses are are serious business for a lot of people. Uh, Etsy did a, a 2012 survey looking at, I think, more than like 5,000 of their sellers and found that 74% of sellers say their shops are their businesses. And 91% of those want to grow their sales, but only to something that they themselves can manage. So the bulk of people on Etsy, I would venture to say, are not trying to create some mega corporation from their sewing or their stuffed animals or whatever, you know, things like that. They they still want to be considered a small-time crafter. Mm-hmm. But that extra income, especially 
in this economy can make a huge difference for a lot of people. But more broadly speaking, some people point to Etsy as a sign of a craft revival that we're in. Um, Chris Anderson, who's the founding editor of Wired magazine, called it the maker movement. Um, and other people have given it other terms. Your, your crafters, your makers, your handmade artisans, whatever you want to call it. There is certainly a resurgence in people making things maybe more slowly and by hand and in smaller numbers. And so this actually kind of harkens back to an interview that you fair listeners might have listened to previously that we did with Emily Matcher, who's the author of Homeward Bound. And she's a big part of this, you know, quote unquote, new domesticity movement. Yeah, she focuses a lot on all of the various kinds of crafts that people are doing and how that even extends into people are doing homesteading and having backyard chicken coops and all of how all of those different things intersect. But when we look at this craft aspect, it's interesting to see how it started because it did not Start with Etsy, as I'm sure a lot of listeners know and are waiting for us to <laughs> hopefully say, no, it did not start with Etsy. Um, in the book, which is also a documentary, Handmade Nation by Faith Levine and Courtney Heimerl, they have a, a delightful timeline of what they call the new wave of craft. And they begin their timeline in 1994. And it really starts out, this new wave of craft, as they call it, in sort of a riot girl type of fashion with a lot of things happening in the Portland, Seattle, Olympia, Washington area. And it's a lot of women initiated alternative crafting communities and zines that start popping up. Yeah. And this should sound familiar, too, if you listen to our riot girl episode in which we talked about zines and DIY and punk music and all of those things, people making their own clothes, making their own publications, all all of that stuff. And so this is kind of happening around that same time. So in the period 1994 to 1999, we have some developments in this movement. BuyOlympia.com goes live. The Glitter Boards, an alternative crafting community, goes live. You have GetCrafty.com, which goes live. Uh, it's put out there by Jean Rayla. Uh, and then Youngblood here in Atlanta opens, which is a pretty awesome store, if I do say so myself. Yeah, and uh, for fans of Bust Magazine, that's when its She's Crafty column starts up. And from there, once we enter into the 2000s, things start to move from just communities and groups to actually having more brick-and-mortar establishments, kind of like Youngblood here in Atlanta. Uh, you have things like Needles and Pens opening up in San Francisco, Cog and Pearl opening up in uh, New York. You have I Heart Rummage in Seattle. And then you have more websites start to pop up, one of which is Not Martha. Dot org Because remember, this is also during the heyday of Martha Stewart, mm-hmm. who, who helped fuel the, some of this DIY ethos. But this is not exactly the Martha Stewart type of crafting. Yeah, I would say they're more parallel. They're not exactly interesting. I mean, they are intersecting. Mm-hmm. But I, I would venture to say that maybe the people who are reading Martha's magazines and watching her TV shows are taking a different route than the women who are participating in this sort of craft revival movement. Yeah, I think of it more as like the punk rock yeah. Martha Stewart. Right. So yeah, as we move forward, it and this movement starts to get bigger and bigger and attract more people who are just like super into knitting. We get things like the Austin Craft Mafia, 
um, and, and a bunch of other communities popping up in, in different cities across the country. And then you get fairs and festivals. Um, you get the Ladies Independent Design League starting in New York City in the mid-2000s, and just bigger craft fairs and trunk shows continue to pop up. Yeah, and you also have specialty magazines like Ready Made and Craft Magazine launching. And then, yes, we must circle back again to Etsy, which goes live in 2006. And the story of how Etsy is born is interesting because it starts out with this guy named Robert Kalin, who was originally brought in by Jean Ralia to redesign her site, getcrafty.com. And she had founded the site in 1998. So she'd been going for a while. And he came in and he'd kind of been like doing other things and was kind of trying to find his way in the business world, figure out what he wanted to do. And he really gravitated toward this radical crafting ethos and all of these festivals and fairs that were happening as well. And a light bulb went off in his head saying, you know what? What if we developed a business model around all of these individual sellers tables that I see at all these festivals? Yeah, and there was a New York Times article talking about this movement and mentioning Robert Kalin. And it doesn't paint him, I think, in the most favorable light. But it is interesting to read because, you know, if you just say like, oh, this guy came in to redesign this ladies craft website and he got the idea to make money. It's it's actually much more than that. He was a philosophy student. You know, he spoke at length to the New York Times reporter about the handmade philosophy. He said it's not a fad, it's a resurgence. And so it was more than just a guy wanting to make money off of a trend that was built largely on the hands and knitting needles of women. Um, he really found himself fighting against the big box store mentality in our country. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a, a very real idealism that was going into the founding of Etsy. And it took off pretty quickly because by late 2007, it had 70,000 sellers, 90 percent of whom were women. And on July 29th of 2009, it achieved its one millionth sale. Right. So as Etsy is building its following and getting more and more sellers on there, selling their amazing uh, creative wares, it's still part of a subculture. It's still not taking over the market and it's still not infiltrating the general online shopping consciousness, you could say. Um, and during this time, Faith Levine, who we mentioned at the top of the podcast, she's the author of Handmade Nation and also made the documentary about this community. She's taking notice, and she really wanted to document what was going on. Yeah, and so she traveled around the country interviewing crafters, makers, artisans about their process, their philosophy, um, their experience being someone who's in this handmade world. And she really wanted to make that documentary hand- Handmade Nation, she says, because she could sense that the crafting tide was swelling mm-hmm. and she wanted to 
do this herself and make this documentary in in the right way before, as she told it, uh, there would be some kind of reality show about cute girls crafting that would just ruin the whole thing. <laughs> can you imagine? Uh, I can imagine. I can imagine. I can too. totally imagine. Um, yeah, she has an interesting quote. She said, I believe the simple act of making something, anything with your hands, is quite a political ripple in a world dominated by mass production. And people choosing to make something will turn these small ripples into waves. And I mean, she should know. She went from just crafting zines and sock monkeys in her apartment to churning out a ton of products, including stuffed owls, which are a thing now. Yeah. Quite a thing. Quite a thing. Uh, and, and that was back in 2002 that she was selling a ton of her stuff online. But again, echoing that Riot Girl podcast, uh, her description in a profile in the New York Times in 2009 was a, quote, sometimes artist who made punk rock magazines. So clearly we've got that hardcore DIY undercurrent. And in those interviews with those crafters in Handmade Nation, there are these themes that constantly come up of wanting to be anti-industrial, anti-institutional, anti-consumerist, and also this appeal of being highly entrepreneurial, And so you really see this intersection of politics with these handmade goods. And uh, in this PBS article about Handmade Nation, because it got a lot of press at the time, uh, it described how quilts are cutting-edge outlets for self-expression and samplers carry messages of anti-consumerism, environmentalism, and feminism. It's interesting. I mean, now, you know, we're coming... I feel like this is a conversation that we've had, you know, obviously on different topics in the podcast before about things that are considered feminine being reclaimed. And, you know, it's part of this this quote unquote new domesticity, a term itself, which doesn't necessarily sit well with everyone, but more of just that political movement towards, okay, well, quilting is such a woman thing, but I'm going to do it and it's going to be radical because, you know, it's it's part of a new upsurge of creativity of creation. Yeah, and there are even crafters out there who specifically make hand goods not so much for uh, the utility or for home decor, whatever you want it to be, but actually to make a direct political statement. So you might have people like yarn bombers out there who are going and wrapping up different uh, things out in structures out in parks or um, just like out in public spaces. Um, and, and there is a term for this. It's called craftivism, which I believe was coined by Betsy Greer, who is the author of Knitting for Good. And there are all of these groups as well who are into craftivism. And it's not just yarn bombing, but there is a lot of knitting involved. <laughs> yeah, and these groups include uh, people like the Anarchist Knitting Circle, the Revolutionary Knitting Circle, and Micro Revolt. And it's funny, we, Kristen and I read the study that talked about this whole uh, craftivist movement and the gender aspects of it and how this is not Martha's crafting. You know, you're you're taking something like, you know, knitting, which happens in the home, and it's traditionally like your grandmother doing it. But you're pairing it with these, quote unquote, masculine ideas about revolution and revolt and anarchy and uh, like knitting death matches, things that are very competitive and outside the home. 
and just kind of mixing up those stereotypes. Yeah, and just the very act of taking that domestic work into the public sphere where it's completely unavoidable. You can't not look at a giant tree that was in Atlanta on a, on a main thoroughfare that had been knit bombed. Right. And this also, though, too, points to the massive spectrum of Etsy and crafting in general from this, you know, the anarchist knitting circle all the way down to the person who is just making a few extra bucks selling some thrifted clothes or handmade stationery, whatever it mm-hmm. might be. Right. It's kind of fascinating to see how all of these different people are being united, knit together, if you will, through Ooh. this movement. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, though, not everyone is excited about it. You know, we spoke about the Martha audience, and I certainly don't want to put any Martha fans down out there at all. But in speaking to the New York Times, Andrew Wagner, the editor of American Craft magazine, said that older generations of crafters didn't really take a shine to this new trend. Basically, he said the old guard was saying it took me 20 years to master my craft and these kids think they can just start by stitching owls. And I see I see where that attitude would come from, because if you're making a quilt because you're an expert quilter and whether you want to make money or whether you're just making it for your grand- grandkids, you might be like, what are these kids doing, you know, making stuffed birds? But, you know, to that I say, like, if somebody wants to freaking stitch a stuffed animal, let them. Yeah. And the thing is, Wagner was going on to talk about how they have retooled, that's kind of a pun, American Craft Magazine to bridge those two worlds. Because the thing about it is those craft people of yore share a lot of the same ideologies as these radical crafters today because there was something called the arts and crafts movement that happened first in the United States at the turn of the century. And then there was a a revival in the sixties and seventies. And it's those, those baby boomers of the sixties and seventies who took part in that revival who might look askance at what's going on today and say that it's not legit, but those arts and crafts movements were still fueled by the same reactions against mass production, industrialization, and things like that. Yeah, it's very cyclical. I mean, our older generations, I would hope, can see that, you know, people our age participating in crafting and things like that are just part of the same cycle that they themselves were on. Um, the movement in the 60s and 70s emerged thanks to Princeton professor Robert Judson Clark, who in 1972 directed an exhibition about the American arts and crafts movement from 1876 to 1916. So, I mean, it, it goes back and back and back and back that these uh, arts and crafts cycles have popped up. Yeah, and, and the first arts and crafts movement actually started in England during the late Victorian period and was promoted by theorist and art critic John Ruskin. And then it travels across the Atlantic to the United States where it actually is renamed, I should have said, the Studio Craft Movement. And this was happening in 1897, that's when the first Society of Arts and Crafts emerged in Boston. But you have them popping up mm-hmm. in all of the largest urban centers in the U.S. Yeah, and it really arose kind of as all of these as all of these ups and downs in the arts and crafts movement do. It really arose as a critique of industrial labor, 
Um, they were fighting against lowered standards for design that they said had been debased by mechanization. They wanted to elevate the designer as craftsmen. Um, and so in these urban centers in America, you have men really leading the movement, but there were a lot of training centers established to teach women certain skills, especially immigrant young women, um, such as Boston's Sunday Evening Girls Club, which was established in 1899 as just a reading group for immigrant girls. But right there at the turn of the century, they founded the very American named Paul Revere Pottery, offering the girls in the group a chance to earn money. Yeah, and, and pottery was often taught to women along with metalwork, textiles, and jewelry making. So these are really interesting skills. And to think about that happening in the late 1800s, early 1900s is pretty fascinating, uh, you know, just because of how you still see similar kinds of things happening today, direct outreach of teaching people maybe in lower income communities how to make handmade goods that they can then sell and create supplementary income. Um, and from there, though, you you do have it trickling into more mainstream outlets. Uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art noted how in the early 20th century, you have magazines like House Beautiful and Ladies Home Journal that really took these ideas of elevating design and craft in the home and interiors and popularizing them. I love House Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> huh, it's almost too aspirational for me at this point. Yeah. Um, but it is fascinating to think of. A magazine like Ladies Home Journal, A House Beautiful, in the hands of maybe an upper middle class woman at the time Mm -hmm. who, unbeknownst to her, is reading about things that were really seeded by a lot of radical socialists at the time. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the socialist roots were definitely stronger in England during the rise of their arts and crafts movement. In America, those socialist uh, tendencies were pretty much limited to the big urban center societies, not so much like your your rural Deerfield, Massachusetts societies for arts and crafts. Yeah, um, and it was in the, the 60s and the 70s with that Princeton professor that you mentioned, Caroline, where he really uncovered this past movement and the mostly male designers of note from the time. And so you have that resurgence and no big surprise that it would happen at that time during so much social upheaval in general and so many reactions against massive institutions. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's interesting that a lot of these crafting movements kind of circle around activities that are so often considered a, like a home sphere, a woman's sphere activity, kind of. Well, and speaking of which, that's something that you see especially happening in the 70s because you're now in second wave feminism. And so you see a similar reclamation of women's work in artistic movements. Um, and this is going back too to that paper we mentioned called Fabricating Activism, Craftwork, Popular Culture and Gender by Zach Z. Bradich and Heidi M. Brush, um, which talks about uh, craftivism, yes, but also how this gender plays so much into craftwork and fabriculture. And in it, they talk about how sewing circles, quilting groups and the like were organizing bodies of first wave feminism. And so then in the 70s with second wave feminism, you see a return 
to those formerly derided crafts because, oh, it's just women's work. They're just doing that in the home. Right. And it is those uh, basically those women's work activities that are decried as they're they're not high art they're just making a quilt because they need a quilt it's it, there's no fine art about it and you have Lucy Lippard who in 1973 wrote an essay called household images in art in which she says that during the women's movement women had the confidence to begin quote shedding their shackles proudly untying the apron strings and in some cases keeping the apron on flaunting it and turning it into art. Yeah, and today you still see those undercurrents of female empowerment, whether it's something as simple as the stay-at-home mom who is stitching up her Etsy wares to make extra income after the kids go to sleep, or the full-time DIY revolutionary who is literally trying to change the world via crafting and craftivism. Yeah, uh, Jean Rayla, the founder of Get Crafty, who we mentioned earlier, Echoes this whole sentiment. Uh, she talked to the New York Times in 2007 and said, I really came to it from more of an indie rock, do-it-yourself kind of political place, sort of married with making peace with feminism. And that echoes those uh, second wave feminists back in the 70s, like Miriam Shapiro, who said, I wanted to validate the traditional activities of women to connect myself to the unknown women artists who had made quilts, who had done the invisible women's work of civilization. So in that regard... Crafting is really freaking politically significant. Yeah, and it's more, it gets even more interesting today too when we see how more men are being brought into this so-called women's work. We have gender divides slowly being brought down. Um, just in terms of Etsy, for instance, 12% of the sellers are men. And there was a 2008 post on the Etsy blog interviewing male sellers, one of whom says that he often surprises people when he talks about his sewing and knitting. And there is still admittedly a gender divide in terms of quote-unquote manly crafts like woodwork, leatherwork, and metallurgy. Um, I also have a couple guy friends who are really into screen printing, um, both hobby and making their income. Um, and Harry Sawyers, who's an associate editor at Popular Mechanics magazine, he helped compile the new book Man Crafts, said that crafts and men definitely go together. It showcases rough-hewn skills like leather tooling and axe whittling. Well, and I'm sure that those guys out there who are doing woodworking or knitting or screen printing, whatever it is, share the same enjoyment of making something on their own, being creative, being artistic, and taking time outside and away from this fast-moving, tech-fueled, mobile, digital, you know, just all-consuming 24-7 kind of pace that we're now living in. And there was this ink story that we read about this whole Etsy trend and basically, like, what is going to happen to Etsy down the road with its under its new CEO, Chad Dickerson. And it interviewed this guy who had been working in a great, you know, great office job, stable, making good money. But he was just he felt so disconnected from the world at large and, and wasn't able to be the kind of creative person that he wanted to be. So he ended up starting to make leather goods like bags and stuff. And um, he started to feel really fulfilled and it took off and he was selling a bajillion bags. And finally, he was like, I can't even stay on Etsy anymore because I followed my true passion, 
and I'm making these bags and I get to be creative, but there's no way that I can keep up with consumer demand for my stuff and still stay, quote unquote, handmade on Etsy. Well, didn't you mention at the top of the podcast with that Etsy survey how a lot of people want to keep their stores to a manageable size. Yes, yeah, a lot of people do. Which you can't make a ton of things if you are one person. Yeah. Um, and you have a lot of people, especially this time of year, where they are working 24-7, speaking of a 24-7 environment, but working all hours just to meet the holiday demand because so many people do want handmade now and it's actually taxing the people who are making all of these goods. And so that is the big question though for crafting and especially with its intersection with Etsy and how big Etsy has become. It's people wondering whether or not that original ethos of small and environmentally conscious and anti-consumerist whether those philosophies have just been watered down, the larger that the business itself has gotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people are none too pleased with the direction they see Etsy going because CEO Robert Kalin was removed by the board uh, recently. And so Chad Dickerson took over and it's uh, Etsy has really flourished under him, depending on what your definition of flourish mm-hmm. is. I mean, um, there's a lot more sellers making a lot more money. And Dickerson really had to wrestle with the idea of how do you make more money as a website, as a business, when your sellers, your most successful sellers grow and then are forced off the website, like that guy who who made bags and, you know, leather goods and stuff like once you hit a certain point on Etsy, you have to go elsewhere. And so they're they are trying to find a way to keep more of their successful sellers so, you know, they can keep some of those dollars in-house. And so a lot of people are calling Etsy like Etsy Bay now, Mm. saying it's getting too big. And so they're wrestling now with calling the idea of calling people designers, letting them be designers. So you're you don't have to be a maker necessarily. You, You can call yourself a designer, but outsource the production to an actual manufacturer to which. Some would say, oh, well, why am I going on Etsy to buy something that might ultimately be made in a sweatshop, even if it's designed by someone in their home? Right. So, I mean, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the direction that it takes. Um, And also the fact that the Etsy style, that kind of vintagey, kitschy, crafty look and aesthetic is something that you're seeing more and more in any story you walk into, any kind of urban outfitters, Forever 21. I mean, they, they even, what Etsy even has a direct partnership now with West Elm. Oh, yeah. Which is owned by Williams Sonoma. Yeah, I, uh, I, well, first of all, I love getting West Elm catalogs. Not that I can afford a single freaking thing in there, but, uh, yeah, they do. They feature Etsy made creations throughout their catalog. You know, they'll have a, a living room set up, but they'll have art on the walls or a vase on the table and, and they'll have a little blurb about the, the artist. And for someone who wants to make it a full-time business, then that's probably great. But then again, you just wonder where, is there going to be a a moment of divergence again between the business path, the more consumerist path and that philosophical path, which makes me wonder if in 20 years, 50 years, if we'll be going through yet another craft revival. Yeah. 
and it should also be interesting to see kind of where this this micro business economy goes because the bulk of sellers on Etsy, for instance, are women. And so what was the stat? It was something like triple the number of women owned businesses documented by the U.S. Census. You know, that those are the Etsy numbers. They're setting their own hours. They're not having to worry about childcare. And but if we're not documenting them well enough and they're not having a social safety net like health insurance, I don't know. It should be interesting to see where these micro businesses, especially the women owned businesses, because they seem to be behind the bulk of them, where they will end up. Mm-hmm. Whether it will go in the direction of being a solid supplementary income that women can rely on, especially, you know, think about single moms or just women in general who might need some extra cash. Um, it, it, it's becoming an, a new asset, a new answer with that giant question mark that comes with working versus or plus motherhood Mm -hmm. or whether or not it's just going to become so large that those opportunities will gradually fade away. So let's end it on an up note, though. Since it's the holidays, support handmade local goods. Oh, yeah. I, I for one, am going to visit Youngblood Boutique very soon to look for a present for my boyfriend's mother because... You know, I mean, it's always, it just always looks more thoughtful and yeah. it is more thoughtful. I feel like to take time and, and look through handmade crafted things. Absolutely. And one of my favorite things to do, um, sorry if you're one of the million people that I've given this to, but one of my favorite things to do for presents is go around to some of the local boutiques in Atlanta and get family members local stuff, whether it's locally made jams or locally made jewelry. I think that I, that feels more personalized and thoughtful than going to Target. Yeah, yeah. And although nothing against Target. Uh, hey, I shop there all the time. <laughs> so I hope that there are some crafters, some makers, some artisans listening. We want to hear from you. What do you think about the work that you're doing? Do you feel compelled by any kind of political philosophy? Or are you just doing it to make a buck? Um, have you thought much about this Etsy conundrum? Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can write us and you can also tweet us at Momstuff Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to our letters. And we've got a couple of letters here from our two-part series that we did on rape and sexual assault in the United States. And this one is from Joseph. And the subject line is Men's Role in Stopping Rape. He writes, This has been a very important subject to me as my wife is a victim of rape and sexual assault. When hearing these stories from her, I couldn't help but get angry and encourage her to report the incidents to the police She did not, unfortunately, because she did not believe that there was enough evidence for anything to be done. They had occurred a while back before we met, and the perpetrator was someone she knew well. Feeling a bit helpless, I turned to the Internet for more information on how to get involved in stopping sexual violence and increasing the rate of reporting. In my searches, I learned more and more about rape culture and the social constructs around it. Over time, I have come to notice that even in the effort of understanding and stopping rape, the concentration is much more on who gets raped and not on who commits rape. Even the vocabulary concentrates on female victims of rape and not sexual violence against women. After watching an amazing TED Talk from Jackson Katz, Ph.D., I came to the belief that we should be talking more about men's sexual violence. 
It has to be recognized that this is not a woman's issue primarily, but instead it is first a men's issue. Why are men so sexually violent and how do we get men to be less violent are much more important questions than why do so many women get raped and how do we stop women from getting raped. To end this on a positive note, I have found that I'm by no means the only guy out there trying to change my way of thinking and that of my peers. The Good Men Project and Men Can Stop Rape are just a couple of organizations devoted to giving men guidance on engaging other men in these topics and encouraging education about consent. I hope you can at least mention our two groups on the podcast since I'm sure you have plenty of male and female listeners who want to get involved. Love the podcast, and thank you for having the courage to speak openly and raise awareness. So thank you, Joseph. I have a letter here from Evan. Uh, she is a sophomore in high school. She says, I really want to thank you for your sexual assault series from these past few weeks. It's an issue that's really close to my heart and that seems to be horribly misrepresented in general. High school is infamous with the constant stories about people being sent home for wearing leggings to school and whatnot. I do have good news, though. This past year, I've noticed my school really taking initiative to bring rape culture and especially slut-shaming out of the dark. I'm a columnist on my school paper, and last year we ran a column about Todd Aiken's musings. In our first issue this year in September, we covered the Chicago Slut Walk on the front page, and my slut-shaming column was in that issue as well. The reaction was overwhelming, particularly this year. We received a ridiculous number of letters from people who've experienced slut-shaming, as well as boys telling us it got them thinking. The goal of a columnist is always to start a conversation, and so I'm thankful to be in an educational environment that's accepting of these discussions. I guess I just wanted to share a positive experience regarding rape culture in the educational environment because we hear so much about schools being unsupportive. Thanks again for being so great. And thank you for being so great, Evan, and participating in a very important discussion. Yeah, and hey, becoming a uh, student journalist. Yeah. Like you and me. Hooray. Very cool. Uh, and thanks to everybody who has written in. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send us your letters. You can also follow us on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com, as well as on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. And of course, you can also check us out on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash stuffmomnevertoldyou. And don't forget, folks, to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. That's audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom.